You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. Wonderful. I'm excited to preach, man. I've been sitting on this sermon for two weeks. Um, I was supposed to preach this last weekend, and as a lot of you know, uh, on Thursday morning, two Thursdays ago, I tested positive for COVID, and uh, so I just wanted to say a big thank you to John Sponsler being handy, and um, Joe and Elizabeth Guito, just, you know, kind of last minute. I mean, we put it all together Thursday, because I knew I wasn't going to be here, and uh, they were right on hand, and it just so happens September 11th was that Sunday, and Joe and Liz have a tremendous September 11th story. So I'm not saying God made me have COVID or anything at all, but God is so infinitely wise and creative. I don't know how it works all the time, but it it was perfect. It just landed perfectly. And so I'm grateful for those folks being instant, out of season. And now I get to preach the sermon that I was going to preach last weekend. We're, we're beginning a series that's going to take us all the way up to Advent. So like all the way through Thanksgiving. And we're going to be in the book of Colossians. But it won't be verse by verse through Colossians. I have done that before. But this is going to be a different series where we're going to, we're going to take some of the pivotal passages in Colossians and united around a particular theme, which is one of the themes of Colossians, and that is discipling our minds, um, paying attention to what we think, what we're dwelling upon. I've said this before in, in recent weeks that so much of our Christian growth, becoming more like Jesus, it really hinges upon how we think. Um, if we're constantly thinking upon and dwelling upon and meditating upon destructive, unhealthy, unproductive thought patterns, to that degree, you're going to have a destructive, unhealthy, unproductive life, unfruitful life. But if we're thinking upon things, as Paul says in Philippians, things that are true, noble, lovely, beautiful, then that's going to play out into your life as well. So it really hinges upon this space between your ears. What you dwell on, what you think about, is going to dictate your ability to grow spiritually. So that's what we're focusing on all fall through the book of Colossians. We're using Colossians, which is an ancient letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to an actual church in the ancient city of Colossae. And so we're peering into this letter and learning some things. And so as we talk about how we think, this weekend we're going to focus on the foundation of right thinking. And it has to do with your picture of God. Your picture of God is is inextricably connected to your relationship with God. Your relationship with God will only grow to the degree that your picture of God is healthy. And so that's what we're going to focus on today, the the foundation, which is your picture of God. The flip side of it is going to come in my next sermon in Colossians, which is your understanding of yourself. Now that we know who God is, it tells us who we are. So that's kind of a two-parter. But the title of the sermon for this weekend is Your Picture of God. And it comes out of the passage that we're going to look at 
this evening, which is in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. Um, This passage, Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20, is very unique because scholars are pretty much unanimous in agreeing that this particular section of this letter is not original to Paul. What we have here is Paul quoting from what what is most likely some kind of hymn or creed that goes back to the very first Christians. Because when you look at the language in the Greek, it has a poetic cadence to it. And so scholars are pretty much unanimous that Paul is quoting from what is probably either a, an, a, the earliest, one of the earliest Christian hymns or one of the earliest Christian creeds. And he's putting it in his letter. It's, it's like if I were to write a letter to you, you know, like I do every so often when, whenever we do our giving statements, I write a little letter and I quote like a stanza from, you know, Amazing Grace or something. That's what Paul's doing. Um, and when you look at this passage, boy, it is so dense and packed with really rich theology. I could probably preach on this passage all fall, like all the way to Thanksgiving. That's how incredible this passage is. You'll see what I mean when, I, when we look at it. So I want us to read it all together. But I am going to pause one time. I'm going to pause after this verse that's on the screen, verse 15. There's one little side comment that I want to make on verse 15. And this is the verse we're going to anchor into today. And then we'll read the whole thing in its entirety. But here's what it says in verse 15 of Colossians 1. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, when it says that Christ is the firstborn, we are not to take this literally. This is an image. It's a metaphor. I, in a recent sermon, I, I shared with you how in, in a lot of these ancient Middle Eastern cultures, whenever the father of the household passed away, the entire inheritance would go to who? The firstborn son. That's, actually, that's absolutely correct. Now, the firstborn son could choose to share it with his brothers and sisters if he decided to, but that was the custom. The entire inheritance went to the firstborn son. How many of you are the firstborn son? I am. My hand's raised. So I would have loved that. That would have been great. But, um, but that was the custom. So, so when, when this, this passage is telling us Christ is the firstborn over all creation, it's, it's a metaphor. It's a title of supremacy. It's telling us that Christ is the heir of all things. He's supreme over all. It all belongs to him. But don't be confused, don't take it literally as if there was ever a time when Christ, the second person of the Trinity, did not exist. That's not Orthodox Christianity right there. From the very beginning, Christians have always confessed that Christ is eternal. He has no beginning or end. And sometimes people get hung up on this. I had a person in my church one time, not this church, but my previous church, who 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 took this literally and, and, and had this theological idea in his head and I had to kind of gently give him correction and I don't use this word a lot at all but I had to tell him that's actually a formal heresy. Uh, that's not orthodox. Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is eternal. He's always been no beginning, no end. Amen? 
All right. I just felt like that was important enough to just mention because sometimes people get hung up on the language, and I think it's good to sometimes bring some of that stuff out. So let's read it all now together, verses 15 through 20, then we'll pause and pray and jump right into the message. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. You see what I mean? Wow, incredible him. Um, let's, let's pause and, and pray and direct our hearts. Heavenly Father, thank you for your presence here this evening. And I thank you for my brothers and sisters who have gathered with me in worship. And, and Lord, once again, we just pause in this service and we invite you to speak to our hearts. As individuals, as a collective body, I pray that your voice would be heard clearly through the frailty of a flawed communicator deep within our hearts. May your voice be heard. May the, may the seed of your word be planted, bear fruit for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Your picture of God, everything hangs on this. Your relationship with God is inextricably, it's, in, it's inseparable from your picture of God. Let me explain to you why this is so foundational. At the beginning of the Bible, we're given this story of a man and a woman, Adam and Eve. They're put in this garden, this perfect, pristine um, environment. And uh, God speaks to the man and the woman and tells them, you can eat from any tree, but here's the tree of life. This is the one tree that you're not to eat from. Um, if you eat from this tree, you're surely going to die. So don't eat from this tree, but you can eat from any other tree. And then um, as the story goes, the serpent comes along and the serpent approaches Eve and says, Eve, did God really say that if you eat from that tree, you're going to die? He's lying to you. You're not going to die. It's the exact opposite. You're going to become like God. You're going to become wise like God. You're going to carry divine attributes, and you're going to be on God's level. And God knows that, and he doesn't want that. He knows the potential that you have, and he doesn't want competition. So just understand that about God. And so notice what the serpent does. The serpent gives Eve a picture of God as if God is this pathetic insecure, manipulative being who can't be trusted. And having received and believed this false, defective picture of God, Eve and then subsequently Adam make a unilateral decision apart from God's will and they rebel against God and eat from the tree. 
But I want you to see that the sin that they are guilty of originates from believing a false picture of God. I, I believe I can make a compelling case that all human sin begins by believing a false picture of God. That's why the world is so thoroughly messed up right now. Throughout history, throughout the history of human religions, when you look at pagan religions around the world, I think it's pretty obvious. You'll find demonic pictures of God or the gods. You'll find pictures of the gods who demand child sacrifice. You'll find portraits of gods who enslave human beings. You'll find in the theologies of the gods that uh, they get angry if we don't serve them well enough. And so they throw down thunderbolts and cause earthquakes and create famines and plagues and all of those sorts of things. False pictures that result in broken human relationships. But it's not just present in all of these pagan religions. Within Christianity itself, in 2,000 years of Christian history, there are times when Christians can latch on to defective, inaccurate, unhealthy pictures of what God is like. Let me give you an example. So way back in 2006, I was in my mid-20s, and uh, apart from doing ministry, I did some music on the side, just as a hobby. I would write and record and perform music, not as a professional, purely an amateur, just having fun. I don't want you to think I'm like a big deal or ever was a big deal. I was far from that. But I was just doing music on the side. And I, I did a concert um, in another state in the Midwest. I won't tell you the name of the state. And after it was over, there was a guy who approached me and he said, hey, you're from New Orleans, right? And he said, um, how'd your family do in Hurricane Katrina? Because Katrina happened the year before in 2005. So I explained to him, well, my, my wife and I, we actually live in a different part of the state, but my family, my mom and dad, my brother and sister, they, they all still live in that area. They did fine. They stayed with us for like three weeks, blah, 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 blah. But we're, we're talking about Katrina and all of this. And he said, hey, let me ask you something. And I want to see what you think about this. He said, I believe God created and sent Hurricane Katrina to New Orleans to punish New Orleans for its sin and its drunkenness and debauchery and, and wickedness and you know all of that Mardi Gras stuff. I believe God sent Hurricane Katrina to punish New Orleans. What do you think about that? And I just looked at him and I did not say what I wanted to say to him. Um, but I did have a couple thoughts that I shared with him. Um, I said, well, first of all, if that's true, if God sent Hurricane Katrina to punish New Orleans, then he missed his target because Bourbon Street and the French Quarter, the area around Bourbon Street was largely unscathed from Hurricane Katrina. It was the surrounding communities and neighborhoods, those areas, those were the areas that were flooded and destroyed. But Bourbon Street and those streets around it we're pretty much back up and running very shortly after Katrina. So evidently God needs target practice, you know? But you see, this guy's picture of God, and I don't think it's unique to him, I have found so many Christians who acquire this kind of picture of God, and it comes from this much quoted axiom 
that people say all the time, everything happens for a reason. You've heard that statement before. Everything happens for a reason. Or the Christian version of it would be, God has a reason for everything that happens. And people quote that all the time as if it's in the Bible and it's not. But people quote that as if, in fact, I've heard Christians go so far as to say that everything that happens, God decreed it to happen even before the foundation of the world. It's all part of this this blueprint, this rock solid design that, that God has firmly established so that everything that happens is part of God's plan. I understand why some Christians believe that, I do. Because it gives us a certain measure of comfort and security if we're going through a tough time to feel like, okay, wait a second, I'm okay. I'm in God's plan, so I just got to rest in this. But I want you to go with me here for a moment. Let's take this to its logical conclusion. If we go to the extreme, I want you to imagine this. What if your child or grandchild, if you prefer, what if your offspring, let's just say child, was kidnapped beaten, raped, murdered. Are you to believe that this was part of God's decree before the foundation of the world, that God on some level wanted this to happen or needed this to happen? There's some type of reason it needed to happen, but evidently God doesn't have the decency to explain what that reason is. You either figure it out as you go or maybe just accept that you can't figure it out, it's this mystery, and in the meantime, you are to just simply trust God anyway. In other words, trust this being who decreed before you were ever born that your child be kidnapped and raped and murdered? Do you at least see how that can mess with someone's mind and shipwreck their faith as it has countless people? See, these false pictures keep us in bondage because our relationship with God is totally dependent on the image that we have of God. I'm gonna say it this way. Your love for God, your passion for God, will never outrun the beauty of your conception of God. So to the degree that your picture of God is ugly, distorted, defective, to that same degree, it's going to impact, it's going to hinder, it's going to damage your relationship with God. On the surface, you may still say the right things. You may still do the right things and give glory to God, however you, you, you find to do that. But it's going to have a hard time sinking, absorbing into your hearts because everything hangs on your picture of God. The New Testament reveals that Jesus showed up on this planet to give us, finally, after all, the true picture of what God is like. That's what this verse in Colossians is telling us when it says the Son is the image of the invisible God. In the Greek word, it's the word icon, E-I-K-O-N. He is the image, the icon of the invisible God. Notice it doesn't say he's one of many images. He's the image of God. In the Gospel of John, John calls Jesus the word of God. It's the Greek word logos. It means the self-expression, the self-revelation. Or if I could just say it like this, he is the father's self-portrait. He's not one of many words. He is the word of God. He's referred to as the truth. In the Greek, it's the word aletheia. It means uncovered. 
So when you're looking at Jesus Christ, you are looking at the perfectly revealed character of God Almighty, unvarnished, uncovered, perfectly revealed. I'm begging for an amen. Amen. One of my favorite passages in in Hebrews, I I think it's one of the most important and one of the most provocative passages in the New Testament. I think every Christian needs to have this highlighted or noted in their Bible uh, because, because the author of Hebrews is giving us some very important theology here. Look at what the author of Hebrews says as, as they open this uh, letter. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But, everybody say but. So here's a contrast, right? He says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. And having set all of that up, now in verse three, he gives us the clincher. Look at what he says. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact, everybody say exact. He's not the approximate. He's not the partial. He is the exact representation of God's very being, or it can be translated essence, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Wow. So here's the contrast. What the author is saying is that, you know, in the past, God spoke to us in various ways through the prophets, and that was good. It was important. It was necessary. It it pointed us in the right trajectory, but it didn't fully capture the real glory, the real essence that goes all the way down to the innermost being of God. If you want to know the true character, the true radiance, the innermost being of the God we serve, keep your eyes fixed on the Son, because the Son alone, in contrast to everything that's come before or after, the Son alone reveals the real glory, the real radiance, the exact character and essence of God. It's all found in Jesus. Wow. So when we're looking at Jesus, we're not looking at a slice of God's character. We're not looking at one part of God or one aspect or one side of God. Well, there's this Jesus side of God, but there's also this Mr. Hyde version of God as well over here. We're not looking at God partially revealed. We are looking at God's character completely and perfectly revealed in the Son, Jesus Christ. To believe that is to be a Christian. So I could say it like this. I'm going to give you this axiom. It's not original to me. One of my pastor friends um, came up with this, but I think it's one of the most helpful things that people can memorize. And it's four sentences. So I'm going to give it to you in four sentences. I want you to remember this. You might even write this down. I'm going to say it slow. Number one, God is like Jesus. Say amen. amen. Number two, God has always been like Jesus. Number three, I'm going to say it again. Number three, there's never been a time when God wasn't like Jesus. You know, John Sponster said last week, he talked about the word immutable. That word immutable, it means unchanging. And I think that's particularly true as it relates to the character of God. God's character never changes. God's nature never changes. So let me say those three sentences again for for Pat and for everyone else. Number one, God is like Jesus. 
Number two, God, God has always been like Jesus. Number three, there's never been a time when God wasn't like Jesus. And then finally, number four, we haven't always known this, but now we do. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There's never been a time when God wasn't like Jesus. We as the human race have not always known this, but now we do. Amen? Memorize that. Every so often, say it out loud. Remind yourself, if I want to know what God is like, I don't have to speculate. I don't have to wonder. I don't have to make sense of all of the chaos in my life. I look at Jesus Christ on the cross praying, Father, forgive them. And I know perfectly, definitively, this is what God is like. And the scriptures themselves tell us that the whole point of the scriptures is to point us to Jesus. Not only that, but when you read scripture, no matter where you are in scripture, read it through the lens of Christ. And you'll never get confused about who God is. If you read the scriptures apart from Christ, you can come up with all kinds of pictures of God. But if you look through the lens of Jesus, who all of the scriptures are meant to reveal and point us to, you'll never go wrong. Jesus is your sponsor every time you open your Bible. This is the point of his conversation with Philip in John chapter 14, beginning in verse 6. It says, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. He's just saying, look, man, if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know God, just look at me. If you've seen me, if you know me, then you know the Father. It's kind of, it takes a lot of audacity to say something like that. It takes some boldness, you know. That's why these folks who walk around saying, well, Jesus was a good teacher. He was a, he was a good spiritual teacher, but he wasn't the son of God. I don't know how you can read the scriptural testimony about Jesus and arrive at that conclusion. He's either a lunatic or he's a con man or he's the son of God. That's, those are your answers. Those are your options. Well, Philip doesn't quite get it. So look at what Philip says. He says, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. He's like, Jesus, quit theologizing. Stop talking about the Father. Just show us the Father. And Jesus is, he, he says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You want to see the Father, Hello. Jesus is the exact representation of the Father's essence. Everything you need to know about God's character is found in Jesus. There's nothing deficient in the revelation that the Son gives us of who the Father is. Because the Son, in contrast to everything else, is the exact, the perfect representation of God's very essence. It gets really interesting in Matthew 11, verse 27. Jesus says, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Wow. Now, I have to believe there's at least a little bit of Jewish hyperbole going on here because that was very typical 
because I'm sure that Jesus understood and knew that those folks in the Old Testament, they had some knowledge of the Father. They had encounters with God. They had theophanies. They had epiphanies. They had encounters with, with the Father. But what Jesus is saying is that compared to the revelation that's found in the Son, it's as though no one else has ever seen or known God because what you find in the Son is the exact representation of God's essence. And then again, one more verse in John 1, chapter, uh, verse 18. I th- it should say verse 18. I might have messed that up. So let me give you verse 18 of John 1. Jesus says, or excuse me, John, the writer of this gospel, says, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Now, again, there's, there's got to be a little bit of hyperbole because all of those folks in the old scriptures, the Old Testament, they had some knowledge. They had encounters. They had epiphanies. They had theophanies. But what the writer of John's gospel is saying is that in comparison to the beautiful, full revelation that we have in Jesus Christ, all of those other revelations pale in comparison because here we know what God is really like. God's true character is uncovered and is being disclosed. And Christ reveals God's true nature, he reveals, he is the image of the invisible God. And so folks, so much of thinking rightly as Christians and our own discipleship begins with how do you picture God? What is God like? What image of God do you have in your mind? And among other things, Jesus came to give us a clear, perfect, definitive understanding of God's disposition towards you. And it looks like this. It looks like a God who does not stand aloof to human suffering and pain or stand distant from human sin, but he dives into it on the cross and absorbs it into himself and recycles it. And what comes back is, Father, forgive them. This is what God is like. Get your mind fixed on that. Let that be your starting point and your ending point and the lens through which you interpret everything. I want to close with, with a, a story. Um, there's an author, there's a writer. He's also a scholar, a theologian. Um, and he wrote this book. His name is Greg Boyd. He's, he's one of the most influential people that, that I've ever come across in my life. And come to find out, whenever I was interviewing for Village Church, um, I had interviewed with the elders several times and there came a point where they wanted me to talk to Pastor Wade. And one of the moments where I was like, just like thunderstruck was when I brought up Greg Boyd's name and Wade said, yeah, he was in my church in St. Paul. <laughs> I was like, what? I've read all this guy's books. I, 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 he's, he's the most influential theologian in my life. And lo and behold, he was in Wade Michael's church in St. Paul. And when Wade moved from St. Paul to village, Greg was the interim pastor at the church that Wade left. So that was like one of those moments where I was like, huh, there might be some common DNA here. But um, in this book, Greg Boyd, he shares a story at the very beginning in the introduction. And he, he, it's, it involves a, a woman named Melanie, or he, he at least calls her Melanie in the book. And he, was, he said, I preached a sermon, and at the end of the sermon, at the end of the service, Melanie walked up to me, and she wanted to talk to me. She said, 
I, I've lost my passion for God. I used to be so on fire for God. I used to have so much passion and joy in my heart for the Lord. And now I have nothing. I'm empty. It's gone. And I don't know what happened. I, I, don't, I feel guilty. Where did that go? I want to have that passion for God again. And Greg started to ask her some questions. Well, tell me a little bit about yourself. And what he learned was that Melanie, one of the biggest dreams of her life was she wanted to be a mother. She had always had that strong desire in her heart to be a mother, but she was unmarried all the way until her mid-30s, and then finally she got married. But once she got married, after three years of her husband and her trying to have a child, with no success, she went to the doctors, and, and uh, she was given the diagnosis that, that resulted in uh, her learning. She, it was impossible. She was physically incapable of having a child. And of course, that really just devastated her. But she didn't give up and she prayed and, and she asked God, God, you can do a miracle. Lord, give me a child. And, and she knew her biological clock was ticking. So it was like, hurry up, God. Well, come to find out, after four years of marriage, finally in the fourth year, she conceives this child. And she and her husband, you know, took it as some miracle from God. Like, wow, we were praying. The doctor said it was impossible. Now it happened. So this is a blessing. This is a miracle from God. She carried the child for nine months, total, totally uneventful pregnancy. Everything was fine. Everything was normal until the delivery. And unfortunately, um, in the delivery process, the umbilical cord was wrapped around the baby's neck and they lost the baby. And of course, now she's just completely devastated. And just to say the least, just crushed, shattered. And she went to her pastor, who is not Greg Boyd, but she went to a respected Bible teacher. And she was like, what's the deal? Like, what am I to take from this? You know, how am I to understand this and interpret this? And her pastor just said, well, you know, God has a reason for everything that happens, and the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, and you just got to trust God's plan, and, and, and that, that there's some good that's going to come out of this. And she said, well, what possible good can come out of this? And he said, he suggested maybe there's some lesson that God wants you to learn. And, um, and perhaps, you know, if you learn the lesson, maybe God will grant you another child, or maybe it's God's will that you don't have a child at all. But maybe, maybe you just explore that. Maybe there's some lesson you're supposed to learn. And so she's sharing this now later with Greg Boyd. And as, as Greg Boyd's listening to her story, he gently just responds to her and says, Melanie, no wonder you're struggling with having a passion for God. Look at your picture of God. You've been given a picture of God as if God is the type of God who would give you the strong desire to have a child, prevent you from having the child physically, leave you to believe that a miracle has happened, that you've conceived a child, only to take the child away from you at the delivery because there's some lesson that God wants to teach you. But evidently, God doesn't have the decency to tell you what that lesson is. And you're, you're guilty because you, you feel like you should have a passion. No wonder. How could you possibly be passionate about a God who looks like that? Does that look, is that something Jesus would do to you? And so he's, he gently, probably more gently than I just represented, 
but he gently leads her in that conversation. And then in subsequent conversations and, and over time in subsequent weeks, she's able, she and her husband are able to unlearn some of the damaging aspects of their image of God and reacquire a more beautiful Christ-like picture of God that began to produce new life in their marriage and in their spiritual health and their walk with the Lord. But folks, this is why I'm telling you, everything hinges on how you picture God in your mind. Because you're gonna go through so much garbage in this life. So much garbage, so much abuse, so much hurt and pain. And we, as human beings, naturally, we speculate, we wanna make sense of it, we try to interpret it. Even when we look at the Bible, we're, we try to make sense and interpret and, and put things together. And, and what I'm gonna tell you is this, there's a lot of things we can speculate about and try to fit into our puzzle and, and try to make sense of. But one thing we can know for absolute certain is we know what God is like. If you wanna know the invisible nature of God, don't go speculating on your own reasoning. Look to Jesus. He's beautiful. He's full of grace and truth. He's a Calvary God, he's a servant God. He reveals to us a God of deep humility, a God who's willing to give his life for a lost race of people. We see in the gospels, he's a, he's a God who's befriending the outcast who's embracing the Samaritan woman, who says to the woman caught in the act of adultery, go and sin no more, neither do I condemn you. And when we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, we have a firm foundation to stand on in this chaos of life. I love that song that we sing. I almost, almost had Daniel sing it, but I was like, oh, he's already got his plans. But um, the, the bridge of that song that says, I will build my life upon the firm foundation of your love. I, it's not how it goes. I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. And I'm just telling you, there is no more firm foundation than the love of God perfectly revealed in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. This is what God is like. Everything else is built upon that. Assemble your house of faith on that foundation and it will never fall apart. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.